0: You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com
1: Welcome back to the broadcast, friends. Welcome back to Republic Broadcasting Radio Network. I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you're going to be tuned into Corbett Report Radio for the next one hour, and you're not going to want to tune out because tonight we have a special guest for you on the line. All the way from Kuala Lumpur, where I was just a week ago. How time flies when you're extremely busy editing videos. Uh, we have none other than, none other than Niall Bowie of NileBowie.blogspot.com, who you might remember from a previous appearance on this radio broadcast, and you probably should know just from his own work at NiallBowie.blogspot.com besides. So Niall, thank you so much for coming on today. Good to have you back. Always a pleasure to be on the Corbett Report, James. Well, it's always a pleasure to have you, and it's uh, it's certainly a pleasure to to have met you in, in Kuala Lumpur. And we managed to spend quite a bit of time either attending conferences or waiting to attend conferences together last week. So uh, we got Getting to know into each trouble. Other. Or yeah. Oh, you know us, uh, eating some good curry mee, which I must admit is the first time I've eaten that, but it was, uh, it was delicious. So it was a good time had by all. Uh, so tell us just a little bit for those who are tuning in maybe for the first time, just a little bit about yourself, your background.
2: All right. Well, uh, I'm an independent writer and photojournalist based in Malaysia in Kuala Lumpur. I've been staying here for the past year and a half. Uh, On my blog, I basically uh, archive all my work there, and I contribute uh, various articles about various things, usually in the realm of analyzing terrorism, geopolitics, or economic issues. These days, it's been a lot about social transitions in the U.S. and China. Um, So I write about uh, that sort of stuff, and I contribute to various outlets such as Russia Today, Asia Times Online, Global Research, Land Destroyer Report, so um, if you need to see my work, as James mentioned, it's uh, nilebowee.blogspot.com.
1: That's it. <laughs> that's it. Well, you are all over the place these days, and that's good to see. And uh, we should mention, I want to mention at any rate, that you have a brand new book out that you co-authored with Tony Cardalucci of Land Destroyer Report. And I think we should let people know that that exists at the very least and that it's completely freely available for download right now.
2: Exactly. 118 pages of uh, very... Uh, painstaking research into the Syrian crisis in its its 20 months so far, so uh, that is available for f- completely free download on LandDestroyer.blogspot.com or my own NiallBowie.blogspot.com, and essentially the uh, the book aims to be an alternative historical account of the events in Syria, and it looks at numerous different facets of the conflict. Uh, from looking at everything on the ground, uh, the insurgent nature of the, uh, the rebel opposition there, to looking at the foreign media coverage of the event and how uh, – uh, of the ongoing event and how uh, dishonest it, it has been in, in various cases, and also looking at the potential for a wide, wider regional war, which is looking uh, uh, more likely by the day, unfortunately.
1: Unfortunately so. So this is extremely timely, and it's good to see more people taking on this distribution method of uh, of putting it out there for the the masses. So my hat's off to you guys for doing that, and I'm glad to see this out there. And uh, for people who are interested, we recorded a little interview about this book in Kuala Lumpur last week, so that'll be coming out uh, hopefully next week on the Corbett Report, so stay tuned for that. We also did a little chat about your photojournalism and took a look at some of your photographs. That'll be coming out in the coming weeks as well, and I'm excited about that. That was uh, a really fascinating conversation with some really great uh, photographs, but of course very difficult to show them on the radio so <laughs> we 'll refrain from uh, from talking too much about the photojournalism tonight, but we have a lot to talk about not only what happened in Kuala Lumpur and not only what you 're going to be doing in uh, in the coming weeks but also we have some news stories that we 're going to be talking about, so we 're going to be All over the map, but uh, mostly here in East Asia and Southeast Asia. So uh, stay tuned for more on all of these subjects with, uh, once again, talking to Niall Bowie of NileBowie.blogspot.com. Of course, that'll be linked up in the show notes for tonight's episode. So sit back, take a short break, and we will be right back after these messages.
2: The International Movement for a Just World. Well, thanks for talking to me, Dr. Chandra. Uh, last week you attended a an international forum on uh, the issue of 9-11. Now, why 11 years after the event, uh, September 11, 2001? Why why is talking about 9-11 still relevant? And if you can just talk a little bit about the conference in general.
0: Let's first um, address the important question that you asked, uh, Niall. Why is it still relevant? relevant to talk about 9-11. I think there are at least two reasons why it is relevant to continue to talk about 9-11. Number one, there are a lot of people, very rational, sensible, thinking individuals in various parts of the world, but especially in the United States of America, who are convinced that the official account of uh, 9-11 is full of holes and they feel that this has to be addressed that the truth should be made known about 9-11 the truth should be made known about um, any great catastrophe of that sort we cannot conceal and camouflage the truth So that to my mind is a very important reason why we should know the truth about uh, 9-11. It is related to the second reason that I have in mind. 9-11, like other tragedies perhaps, but more so 9-11, had led to the massacre of um, tens of thousands, of uh, perhaps a couple of million people. Because we are not talking of just that event where 3,000 lives were lost, and that was a great tragedy, without any doubt at all. People from different nationalities who died as a result of what happened in New York and uh, Washington, D.C., on that fateful day. But what about uh, the hundreds of thousands, um, perhaps a couple of millions have died in Iraq, in Afghanistan, or the Pakistan-Afghanistan border as a result of the war on terror, which is a direct consequence of 9-11. The war on terror which continues to affect all of us, to impact upon all of us. So, If you look at the magnitude of the human tragedy linked to 9-11, it is something which uh, weighs heavily on our conscience, the collective conscience of humankind. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, humankind as a whole should do everything in its Mm power to reveal the truth about 9-11. So these, to my mind, are two very compelling reasons And uh, for those of us who are concerned about global politics, there is perhaps a third reason. 9-11, to my mind, is at the very heart of the global power structure. It is at the very heart of the drive towards global hegemony. It is at the very heart of the relationship between the centers of power in the world and uh, various other client states not just um, in um, parts of Europe or West Asia, but also, I think, in our part of the world, in Southeast Asia, and how they are linked to that power structure. It is also linked, I think, to the very intimate relationship between uh, political Zionism and uh, imperialism. So these are very compelling reasons on why the truth should be known about nine eleven.
2: Now, despite the former Malaysian Prime Minister Dr. Mahathir Mohamad, uh, you know, leading this, this reinvestigation yeah. of 9/11, it seems like the local newspapers here in Malaysia really didn't didn't cover it very much. Did, can you uh, give a little bit of insight into that?
0: Well, the local newspapers, it's true, didn't uh, cover the event. Neither did the foreign newspapers, mainstream media, and I. Not even sure whether the alternative media covered it, mm-hmm. which goes to show that um, when it comes to an event like nine eleven and wanting to know the truth about nine eleven, it is so difficult for people to know the truth because the media is not prepared to even uh, provide minimal coverage to an event like this. How often do you have a national leader and a person who has been uh, very active in international politics, like uh, Dr. Mahdi Mohammed, a person like this leading an attempt to unravel the truth about 9 11, and yet you find that even the local media doesn't give it uh, any coverage, let alone the international media. So I think the real conspiracy that we should be concerned about, because people very often dismiss 9 11 as a conspiracy theory, you know, those of us who say that there was something else more sinister, more diabolical behind 9-11, those of us uh, who are the victims of that sort of uh, attempt to dismiss uh, inquiries into 9-11 as uh, a conspiracy, we would like to say that the real conspiracy is by the media and those who are behind the media, those who control the media. This conspiracy of uh, silence, trying to ignore 9-11, trying to make it appear as if this is uh, the work of some crazies, you know, some loonies who somehow don't want to come to terms with the truth. And and yet we know that there are a lot of issues as far as 9-11 is concerned, and they are the ones who don't want people to come to grips with the truth. They are the ones who are part of this conspiracy, the conspiracy to keep the lid on 9-11, to keep it under wraps. That's the real conspiracy.
1: All right, friends, welcome back to the broadcast. Of course, this is Corbett Report Radio, and I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. What we were just listening to there is a clip from a recent interview that Niall Bowie just conducted with Dr. Chandra Muzavar there in Kuala Lumpur. And the video, the complete video, the full interview is up on YouTube right now. It's called The Moral Imperative of Reinvestigating 9-11. So I will put that link in the show notes so you can go and watch the full interview with Dr. Muzavar. But Niall, uh, let's just uh, tell people about the clip. Well, let's tell people about who Dr. Muzavar is and uh, what you guys were talking about.
2: Uh, Dr. chanja Muzavar was um, formerly uh, part of the Malaysian opposition here. Uh, in the late 1980s and 1990s, and uh, for the past 20 years, he's been working with this NGO, the International Movement for the ju- for a Just World, uh, and it's, he's the president of the NGO, and uh, I have recently, as of the past few months, I've been volunteering uh, and submitting some of my articles to their monthly uh, publications and um, producing video interviews like this one. So uh, I would advise if people found that uh, that interview interesting, there will be a, a steady stream of more interviews and certain com- and commentary on various issues ranging from the sanctity of religion to uh, geopolitical analysis uh, coming in the weeks to follow.
1: Excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to all of that. And of course, uh, Dr. Muzavar was uh, in attendance there at the 9-11 conference where I was presenting along with others, Michelle Chasadowski and, and uh, Dr. Hans Kochler and Niloufar Bhagwat and people from all around the world, just an incredible uh, range of speakers. Let's tell people a little bit about that conference and uh, really what, uh, what brought it all about. Sure. Well,
2: I really have to applaud Dr. Mahathir Mohammed for putting the whole thing together. It's a, a product of the Perdana Global Peace Foundation and uh, it really, for lack of a better term, it takes uh, uh, it takes a lot of courage to do uh, to put together a conference like that, looking at the evidence, especially someone who was a former prime minister of the country. So the whole purpose of this uh, of this conference was to get experts together to really reevaluate the evidence, uh, what exists so far, and to talk about what is the next step, what next in terms of. Uh, selecting individuals, you know, uh, uh, who perhaps were responsible for the attacks on 9-11. And I, I I told you in person, and I'll say it again, that your uh, your presentation, your speech was very significant because you were the only participant who pointed out what I would consider the first questions that really need to be asked in determining who is responsible or who could be responsible. And that falls on Dick Cheney and Donald Brumsfeld and why they Uh, failed to, uh, I guess, conform to military protocol on
1: that morning. Exactly. Every protocol, military, governmental, and otherwise. So uh, absolutely, I think that would be the beginning of any criminal investigation, and certainly not the end. Of course, those are not the only two people that we should be pointing the finger at. But obviously, when we're looking at a criminal investigation, you start prosecuting where you can prosecute and uh, and see where that leads you. So so I'm glad to see that that was re- well received, and I'm, I hope that uh, people will spread the word about uh, not, of course, just my presentation, but all of the presentations, which, again, I am putting up on YouTube.com slash Corbett Report piece by piece, and it is coming up. I just put up Michelle Chosodovsky's presentation where he laid out some of the connections between 9-11 and Afghanistan and how that can be used to prosecute war crimes that are based on 9-11, etc. So there is, I think, a, a a real momentum that's building here and hopefully will not be lost uh, towards setting up some sort of International Commission of Inquiry that can then be forwarded to the International Criminal Court for what it, that's worth, or f- for a prosecution within the United States, or for prosecution at Kuala Lumpur War Crimes Tribunal. There's a lot of ways that this can go. So I think that this is exciting that it is at, at least the ball is rolling, and, uh, and obviously we we uh, have to keep at it and we can't let it go but uh, but i think it is exciting so sure. uh, so i think we have to keep our eye on that and of course Purdana is uh, is there at the basis of this
2: certainly i think dr dr mm-hmm. muzbarton correct in saying that the mainstream media is completely complicit in pushing this lie even the main, mainstream media here in malaysia they focus more on a royal visit from uh, will and kate you know here in malaysia <laughs> than this conference incredibly important yeah. conference put together by the former prime minister surprise surprise so it's, right. it's, it's
1: bewildering okay we have another break coming up let's take a short break we'll be right back after these messages Hey friends, welcome back to the broadcast. Of course, this is Corporate Report Radio. Tonight, we're talking to Niall Bowie. And once again, if you go to niallbowie.blogspot.com right now, you will see right up there at the very top of the front page the new book, War on Syria, Gateway to World War III, co-authored by Tony Cardalucci and Niall Bowie. So I hope you guys out there will go and download that for free and spread the word about this document. Of course, again, representing a lot of careful research about what's been going on in Syria but tonight we're going to be talking about a wide range of things. And, of course, Niall, you are always on the move. I'm somewhat jealous of your mobility. And I understand you have some uh, some interesting journeys coming up in the next couple of weeks. Tell us uh, where you're headed.
2: I'm on Sunday. I'm flying to Beijing. And I'll be catching a flight to Pyongyang, North Korea. It'll be my second trip to North Korea. Uh, and after that, I'll be going back to Beijing to spend a few days and also visiting Shanghai. I've not been there yet. Um, so, uh, basically, the purpose of my trip is uh, is partly research, uh, partly leisure, and uh, and certainly to produce some photojournalistic photography. Um, with China, for example, um, if you look at, I love looking at old photographs of what China was like under the time of Chairman Mao, and uh, I I see China today as a very interesting country. It's one in transition where you have the new uh, you know mixing with the old in very interesting ways and uh, certainly in, in some areas the transformation is just uh incredible and in such a short time over the space of a few decades so as a photojournalist i'm going back to china to uh, photograph uh, these changes that i see and things i find significant but uh, what i think will be more of a highlight is of course uh, going back to north korea which of course is a uh, for a photographer, a very fascinating country, it's very much like a time capsule, uh, preserved the way it was in the 1960s following the, uh, the communist revolution of Kim Il-sung. Very much uh, things exist as they do uh, today, as they did back then. And it's also a significant time to go, primarily because we're nearing the one year that the new leader, the brilliant comrade Kim Jong-un has been in power. So it, uh, it should be a very interesting trip indeed.
1: This is your second time to North Korea, as you say. So, in your first time, did you have any problems taking pictures or anything of that sort? Were there any uh, sort of guides as to what you could or could not take out of there?
2: Uh, it was pretty random. Certainly, they did tell us, you know, uh, not to photograph certain things. For example, um, there was a, we were walking along Kim Il Sung Square, and there was this shop window that had this uh, poster in it advertising a milk or something like that, and it had really looked like something straight out of the nineteen sixties and it was sun-faded, and it was just interesting. And I asked the guide, um, you know, would I be able to photograph that, and she just looked at me and smiled, and she she shook her head, you know. And uh, it was a pretty interesting thing. But I think at the same time, as we walked past that milk shop, everyone else photographed it, and, uh, and, and she didn't say anything about it. So you just have to sort of read the subtle lines of what you can and cannot do. Um, certainly, if you're driving through side streets and you see – you know, images of poverty in the alleyways and whatever. Uh, that's the stuff that they don't want people to photograph. Um, but uh, obviously there are very Soviet-like restrictions. For example, when you go to North Korea, you stay on a hotel that is in the middle of an island uh, within the city Pyongyang. Uh, so you're obviously not, al- not allowed to leave your hotel without any sort of supervision. And this is not just because I'm an American citizen, for example. This, is, this goes for any foreign visitor uh, visiting North Korea. Uh, So certainly, uh, whether you're interested in the country or not, going there is a fascinating experience. And uh, it's one of those strange places on Earth where uh, visiting a a water bottle factory is so exciting.
1: (laughs) I can imagine. Well, I think anything would be absolutely fascinating there, just because it is, I mean, the most isolated country on the planet, I would say. So so just getting in there must be exciting in and of itself um so i'm very much looking forward to see what what comes out of that and and of course the photographs etc that you managed to come out with and uh and your trip to china as well your first time to shanghai what are you hoping uh, to, to to see there
2: uh perhaps um you know i haven't really thought a lot about it i don't think shanghai is so significant for historical sites but i do um i do quite admire the sort of 1930s style architecture uh that that is in, around in Shanghai. I'm not sure uh, how prevalent it is, but certainly the skyline has emerged uh, in the past several decades and it's it's really transformed into a megacity. So going there and just sort of uh catching the rhythms of the city is sort of my plan and just seeing what happens. I don't really have any concrete uh agenda. Uh, however, perhaps I can gain some contacts there and, and conduct some interviews uh, while I'm over there to see what the situation is like and, and the mood on the ground with the uh, with the upcoming uh, uh, transition in, in leadership.
1: Absolutely, yeah, very interesting time, especially to be in China. I think with this uh, with this change in leadership and seeing how things will will fall, I, I'm sure it is too early to say. But do you have any any ideas yet on uh, how Xi Jinping is going to be changing and or maintaining the status quo?
2: Well, I think the Chinese leadership has come to a time where they recognize that the people are really calling for a little bit more public participation in Chinese politics, because as it exists today, they don't have any. Um, I think they recognize the uh, cases of corruption being being quite a uh, you know serious problem, something that could potentially challenge the leadership of the party directly. And this is things like fresh graduates coming out of uh, college or whatnot and having to pay Huge bribes just to get a job at a local hospital or something like that or, or, or a school. Uh, so tackling this with
1: you in a, such a, really planned okay unfortunately you're breaking up a little there we'll, we'll have to leave it there but we are coming up against a break so let's take a short break and when we come back we'll continue talking to niall bowie of niallbowie.blogspot.com and we'll go over some news headlines from around asia so stay tuned right there we'll be right back
0: introducing the last word dvd For the first time on DVD, you can own all seven episodes from the first season of The Last Word video series, including The Last Word on Terrorism.
1: You see, to Kissinger and the other adherents of the globalist ideology, terrorism is simply a word for any act that threatens the agenda of the globalists.
2: The Last Word
0: on CCTV.
1: But there is something more fundamentally troubling about this entire CCTV surveillance grid, than mere hucksterism.
0: The last word on utopia.
1: The most pernicious evil always presents itself as something necessary, something transitory, a mere waypoint on the road to the land of milk and honey. In this way, the masses can be led to not only tolerate the most intolerable conditions, but actually to support those who would seek to rule over them.
0: And the last word on independence.
1: It is a choice that we make each and every day to live in independence or in slavery every day is Independence Day
0: The Last Word DVD Buy your copy today at CorbettReport.com
1: All right, friends, welcome back to the program. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. Tonight we are talking to Niall Bowie. Once again, you can go to niallbowie.blogspot.com. And if you happen to miss that or don't know how to spell that name, just go to corbettreport.com and you can find it in the show notes for tonight's episode when it gets posted later tonight. And on that note, we have, uh, well, we have some news stories. In fact, more specifically, Niall has lined up some news stories from around Asia and the Middle East that we want to go over tonight to talk about and to mull over some of the things that are happening around the world. Lots of news breaking just as we're speaking. So, Niall, uh, what have you got up for us? Tell us about some of these stories. Excellent. Well, the focus tonight is
2: on West Asia, Middle East. So, Uh, We woke up to some pretty good news this morning that Palestine was uh, voted uh, as a non-member observer state officially in the United Nations. And this uh, excerpt comes from an article published on RT. Uh, In his speech, Mahmoud Abbas mentioned Israel's deadly assault on Gaza that took place this month and stressed that Palestinians would accept no less than the independence of the state of Palestine with East Jerusalem as its capital. The Israeli government has described Abbas's speech, which was met with a standing ovation at the General Assembly, as defamatory and venomous. The world watched a a defamatory and venomous speech that was full full of mendacious propaganda against the IDF army and the citizens of Israel, the Israeli PM's office said in a statement. Israeli UN Ambassador Ron Prosor warned the, the General Assembly that the Palestinians are turning their backs on peace. And what an incredibly distorted statement that is, don't you think?
1: I do. I must admit I haven't heard the speech, so maybe it really is defamatory and venomous, but somehow I'm kind of doubting that, and it's just more overheated rhetoric from the Israeli UN ambassador. Surprise, surprise. What's your take on it?
2: Well, if you look at the map of countries that voted for and against, uh, you basically have the United States and Canada and Australia and a few other states in Micronesia, and of course, Israel voting no, and the rest of the world in green in supporting Palestine. So I think it's quite clear the Israelis have lost the propaganda war. Uh, and I think the United States is completely complicit in going along with this. Obviously, uh, the United States um, uh, vetoed a resolution uh, to basically propose a ceasefire uh, last week. Uh, and uh, the statistics I've read is that in the, in the recent operation pillar of defense, 25 times more uh, ca- casualties on, on the Gaza side than on the Israeli side. I mean, it's, it's completely, uh, I guess the message here with the, with the Palestinian and the Israeli conflict is something like, uh, you pinch me and I'll shoot you. I mean, it's, it's completely uh, disproportionate.
1: I think so, but uh, I I don't think this uh, result is really that surprising. I think everyone was expecting this to pass in the General Assembly. The real question is what will actually result from this, and uh, it's really unclear whether really anything of substance will come of this, but it does allow theoretically Palestine some way to do things like bringing cases against Israel in the International Criminal Court, etc., but Sure. There's a little
2: little bit of wiggle room, but I think at the end of the day, this is really more symbolic than anything else. So just want to move into the next headline here. Qatari poet jailed for life for insulting Emir with his poem. A Qatari court has sentenced a poet to life in prison for his verse insulting the country's leader and inciting anti-regime sentiment. The poem was inspired by the Arab Spring protests. Mohammed Jib Ajami was charged with insulting Amir Hamad bin Khalifi al-Tani and inciting to overthrow the ruling system for his poem, Tunisian Jasmine, inspired by the uprising in Tunisia. The poet's lawyer said he was not even given a chance to defend his client. The judge made the whole trial secret, said Najib Nuanami. Mohammed was not allowed to defend himself in court, and I was not allowed to plead or defend him in court. So I just want to cite the, the line but that he was uh, in trouble for. So the line is simply, we are all Tunisia in the face of repressive authorities. And it's certainly ironic. The double standards are overwhelming when it comes to this story because Qatar is a country more than anyone else that are, that are funding and financing the illegal flow of weapons into Syria uh, to be used by anti-government rebels in that country. I mean, it's It's overwhelming.
1: It's cut and dry, isn't it? And the hypocrisy is equally cut and dry, especially when you just stack it up against all the other hypocrisies around the so-called Arab Spring. The uh, you never hear about what happened, uh, what's happening in Saudi Arabia, for example. You never hear about freedom of speech in Qatar. You never hear about women's rights in Saudi Arabia or any of these other U.S. ally proxies in the region. It's always, of course, only about the people they want to demonize. And I think it's uh, it's absolutely blatant what's going on. And I wonder where the good lapdog left liberal progressive establishment is on issues like this. Well,
2: it's just a, it's a continuation of the history of the U.S. imperialist establishment demonizing any secular nationalist ruler as a bloodthirsty tyrant, and yet they cozy up with the worst of the worst. You know, so uh, we'll hit the next headline here: total blackout. Syria goes offline nationwide. The internet in Syria has been shut off nationwide since so two U.S. based web, moder- web monitoring companies. During the 20 months of the civil uprising, Syria has gone through partial Internet disruption, but 100% blackout is unprecedented. Syrian state TV denied the blackout was nationwide. It said the the outage was caused by a technical failure only affecting some provinces and that technicians were trying to fix the problem. The Syrian Ministry of Information blamed terrorists for the outage, as reported by the broadcaster. So what's your take on that, James?
1: It's a good question. I don't have enough information to have an informed take on this. Uh whether or not it is a 100% blackout is a pretty important thing to establish. So if it is, that would of course mean some sort of widespread tampering with the fundamental pipes, you know, that are going into Syria and uh I think there's a lot uh, there's a lot more to be said there, but if it is just a uh, an intermittent outage it could be. It could just be technical problems. It could be just part of the chaos of the uprising that's happening there. Or it could be, I suppose, it could be either the government or the, uh, the terrorists trying to man- deliberately manipulate and sabotage it. I, I really think there's not enough information yet to, to say either way. But wh- what do you think? Indeed. Well, it
2: makes me uh, it, it makes me remember what Terry Masson of uh, VoltaireNet wrote about a few months ago where he predicted that uh, some kind of psychological operation would be conducted against the Syrian people. Well, what's happening now is slightly different. Uh, I think it sort of falls uh, along that same trend. And I want to pull up an article here from uh, the New York Times, June 2012, from, uh, yeah, U.S. underwrites uh, Internet detour around censors. The Obama administration is leading a global effort to deploy shadow Internet and mobile phone systems that dissidents can use to undermine repressive governments that seek to silence them by censoring or shutting down telecommunications networks. The effort includes secretive projects to create independent cell phone networks inside foreign countries, as well as one operation out of a spy novel in a fifth-floor shop on L Street in Washington, where a group of young entrepreneurs who look as if they could be in a garage band are fitting deceptively innocent-looking hardware into a prototype Internet in a Suitcase. Financed with a $2 million U.S. State Department grant, the suitcase would be secreted across a border uh, and would quickly allow the setup of wireless communication over a wide area with a link to the global Internet. This next part is significant. The State Department, for example, is financing the creation of stealth wireless networks that would enable activists to communicate outside the reach of governments in countries like Iran, Syria, and Libya, according to the participants. Now, I wonder, are... are Activists in Bahrain or Qatar or Saudi Arabia getting access to this internet in the suitcase. What do you think?
1: I'm gonna guess. I'm gonna go out on a limb and say probably not. No, this is obviously meant. This is meant to feed into that Twitter Revolution meme that they've created around the Arab Spring and that is part of the sort of official story of what happened there. And they want people to believe that you know Twitter and Facebook etc is really this revolutionary tool that's bringing down these repressive regimes. But of course, only in the countries where they want it to happen. And that's where they're obviously directing their energies. So obviously, in places like Saudi Arabia or Qatar or other places that are U.S. friendly, they're not going to to be providing this technology or, or you know putting together the teams of activist dissidents to uh, to to uh, help spread the awareness of this type of technology. It is hypocrisy in action, basically.
2: Could have said it better myself. So uh, on that note, while we're, well, we're still talking about the GCC countries. This next one is quite interesting. Saudis say no to Prophet Muhammad, yes to Paris Hilton. More and more people are speaking out against the Saudi regime and the way in which its Wahhabi ideology has linked together an utter disregard for the historical heritage of Muslims with an unabashed embrace of vapid capitalism. In both Mecca and Medina, the Saudi state has already bulldozed over 90% of the Islamic monuments going back some 1,400 years. In their place, they're putting up five-star hotels, parking lots, and shopping malls. Adding insult to injury, in the same cities of Mecca and Medina where the Wahhabi-backed Saudi state has bulldozed the historical shrines and cemeteries of the family of the Prophet, now we have the establishment of shopping malls featuring Paris Hilton. So here's a a little excerpt here. Sami Agali who's the director of the Hajj Research Center, which is trying to preserve what's left of the Islamic heritage of Saudi Arabia, says of the Saudi state, They're turning the holy sanctuary into a machine, a city which has no identity, no heritage, no culture, and no natural environment. They've even taken away the mountains. And I think this story is very significant because we see these staunch, despotic, hereditary monarchies, these U.S. allies in the Persian Gulf uh, basically getting a trump card to commit whatever sort of violations in human rights uh, uh, that that they want uh, and uh, in exchange, what they do is they bow to Western finance capital. And they, they uh, with the specifics, to specifically to Saudi Arabia, I believe the fact that they're bulldozing these sites uh, has something to do with the Wahhabist belief system. I'm not an expert on it, but uh, basically it's against idol worship of any kind. And
1: uh, the,
2: the, Saudi, the Saudis are turning a blind eye to. Uh, Other concerns of other Muslims who want to go to these sites and and, uh, want to preserve the historical significance of these places.
1: That's right. And of course, the Wahhabist ideology is the one that's uh, behind the, the radical terror groups that are then puppeteered by the international intelligence agencies to do their bidding for uh, things like 9-11, etc. So, so absolutely, it does feed into a big system. And it's interesting to watch uh, how basically Saudi and uh, Arabia and places like that are starting to be taken over by the inevitable approach of American culture and the big entertainment machine. And in many ways, this goes back for me to, to the big Orwell uh, 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 Orwell Huxley debate over what type of dystopia we'll live in in the future, and rather than the boots stamping on the face forever, I think it's going to be more like the uh, the Huxley inversion if things continue to deteriorate this way because people want the uh, the entertainment they want to be amused to death and uh, and American culture does that very well, so it will export itself everywhere and anywhere into the most unlikely nooks and crannies of this world, and it's a big question trying to unravel. Basically, how, how to stop the cultural imperialism. A military imperialism can be dealt with because there will be military resistance, but uh, cultural imperialism is so insidious because it sneaks in the back door. And I was actually talking to Dr. Kyo Chung of uh, Tsinghua University in Beijing earlier this year. And uh, yes, the video will be coming out of that at some point. It will. And we were talking about this very su- subject, the cultural imperialism. And in fact, on that note, Hu Jintao actually devel- delivered a, a message to the Chinese people a year or two ago talking about cultural imperialism as one of the biggest threats to Chinese culture. So I think this is something that a lot of cu- cultures around the world are facing right now, even some of the most unlikely places like Saudi Arabia.
2: Well, it's the Dubaiization of the Middle East, and it's certainly uh, it's starting in places like Qatar, United Arab Emirates, and more slowly in Saudi Arabia. But it's looking like uh, this is going full scale up into West Asia. You know, uh, as if trends continue.
1: And I hope that people who are watching that and watching the Dubaiization—I think that's a good term—but uh, I hope people who are watching that. Keep in mind what happened with Dubai, which was set up to be this, you know, beacon of you know commerce and capitalism, etc., in the Middle East, and and a uh, place for for rich people like Cheney, etc., to to retire with their nest eggs. And of course, the bottom fell out, and uh, in the last few years, with the global economic meltdown, and now we have all—all all, all there is—is is a bunch of undeveloped. Uh, construction starts on on ridiculous projects that were g- g- way overpriced anyway so so that is the price that's paid ultimately for this it signs you on to this international economic beast system and then uh, leaves you high and dry when it all falls apart as predicted so so i hope people are at least keeping that in mind
2: and it's incredible when you go
1: i was in the united arab emirates uh, last month and uh,
2: it's it's amazing that these two countries the emirates and qatar Uh, The indigenous people, meaning Emirati people or Qatari people, uh, I think in Qatar they comprise less than 10% of the population. And in the United Arab Emirates, Emirati people comprise 17% of the population. So these countries have literally opened their doors and let their country become bastions of Western corporations and finance capital.
1: What's it like in Malaysia on those grounds? I mean, obviously, Malaysia has always been a multi-ethnic sort of culture. So do you see that same type of Americanization happening there, or is it a different factor playing, playing out?
2: With, with the young people, yes, uh, in, in some sense. But I think nowadays, I think the uh, Korean pop culture wave is becoming more prominent here in Asia and certainly in Malaysia. But, of course, I think that has its origins in a uniquely kind of American style of, of uh, entertainment um, and, and girl bands, boy bands, and what have you. Uh, but I think there are always some positives and some negatives to this. The older generations in Malaysia are very much divided on race and uh, and religion. For example, it's not often that you'd go to a Chinese restaurant and you'd say a, see a Malay Muslim eating a curry mee, for example. It doesn't happen so often. But among the young generation, because of this, I guess, culture of gradual, a little bit more openness, uh, We're seeing a lot less racial tension among the people our age and and younger. So, I mean, uh, I try and when I approach stories like this and, and approach the question of cultural imperialism, always trying to look at two sides, but certainly the negatives outweigh the positives.
1: Well, it seems to be that way, anyway, and I th- and I think it w- outweighs the positives because it's part of a much much bigger system that's interlocking. But the culture is such an important part of it because, as we've talked about on this program many times, if you can get people's minds, if you can en- entrap and ensnare their minds, then you've really the body and the soul will follow. Basically, I mean, there's nothing there's nothing else to uh, to do at that point. So, so I think it is an insidious process because it is so benign. It looks so, you know carefree and and happy and go happy go lucky from the outside. It's just, it's just, you know, Hollywood movies and, uh, and uh, Walmart or whatever, but it's part of a much, much bigger interlocking economic and social system. So I I think it's, it's definitely a tough nut to crack because there's no easy answer in how to resist that, or at least none that I can see.
2: And, and basically what this kind of system creates is a, is a kind of person who is interested in their own identity and their own fashion and their own style uh, and creating a, a kind of a self-interested inter- creature uh, that is ultimately an obstacle to any kind of transformative social change. So uh, I think they've perfected, uh, by they, I mean the, the people who are engineering uh, all of this culture, uh, they've perfected this model that creates this kind of a happiness machine, we can say.
1: That's a good way of putting it. And uh, and uh, again, it's something that I think people need to take more seriously because, again, it is important to know what's happening militarily, but it's equally important to understand how the ec- economics ties in with an entire culture which is being exported wholesale, which is tra- transforming the world in uh, in a very rapid pace at any rate and in ways that should probably give us at least pause for thought, if nothing else. Speaking of pause for thought, we're coming up against a break, so let's take our final break of the evening and we'll be back to wrap things up once again. And with Niall Bowie, nilebowie.blogspot.com, right after this. Alright friends, welcome back to the last few minutes of tonight's program here on Republic Broadcasting. Once again, this is Corbett Report Radio, and we've been talking to Niall Bowie of niallbowie.blogspot.com. And just wrapping things up, one thing that we haven't really touched on tonight is another aspect of what we were watching last week in Kuala Lumpur, which is the commission hearing on Palestine, uh, talking about Operation Cast Lead and some of the other Israeli war crimes being committed in Gaza and the West Bank. And lo and behold, as we're talking about it, the bombs start dropping again. It was quite a bizarre piece of coincidence timing, I suppose, on that. Mm. Let's tell people a little bit about what happened and where things are going from here.
2: Well, as part of the um it was a hearing on war crimes Israeli war crimes that were perpetuated against Palestine so we spent two days um, listening to uh, several witness testimonies who really brought some harrowing stories uh, to to the forefront um, We had the opportunity uh, both James and myself to interview uh, some of these these um, uh, people you know in palestine and and uh, I, I expect that video will be coming out soon but uh, what, what I think we can expect from this is in the coming months, I believe the, the Kuala Lumpur War Crimes Commission will take that evidence that was established over the past uh, last week uh, and put it into uh, uh, the legal system to uh, basically start another tribunal, uh, which we'll have, I guess, in May or June. Uh, and, of course, this tribunal has no legal uh, authority uh, they can't, for example, go and arrest Benjamin Netanyahu uh, for what the, uh, the Israeli government has done recently. Uh, but I think at the very minimum, although it is symbolic, uh, I'm glad someone is, is doing this. And there's some other organization that can be looked to that is not biased and, and uh, that does not um, have the same uh, lopsidedness of the ICC, if you know what I mean.
1: Of course, yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, definitely it's important to be looking for alternatives to the ICC, which clearly and obviously is not going to, uh, fulfill its duties and responsibilities in, 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 actually investigating these war crimes. So it is important that this Kuala Lumpur War Crimes Tribunal goes forward in the future, and I hope people will at least be aware of its existence now, and of course they can find out more at criminalizewar.com, dot org as well as the Perdana Global Peace Foundation's website at perdana4peace.org. That's the number four, perdana4peace.org. Again, I'll put those links in the show notes as well for tonight's episode. A lot of information we've gone over tonight, and a lot more that will be spilling forth soon from niallbowy.blogspot.com. And, uh, and of course, I hope people will go there to check it out and to check out your new book. So, Niall, we've talked about so much tonight. Anything? Any final words you'd like to leave the audience with?
2: Uh. Basically, I just wanted to say in relation to uh, the Israeli hearing, uh, when I heard some of the harrowing testimony, um, it was clear that what the IDF forces are doing in Gaza and what they've done in the past during Operation Cast Lead is completely um, uh, meticulously planned and they're completely aware of what, what they're doing, which is they're committing war crimes. They're rounding up large groups of people into small houses and planes are coming by and bombing those target sites. I mean, these are these are crimes under international law, law and they're immoral. And uh, I would hope everyone pay as much attention to this as possible.
1: I hope so, too. Well, we'll do our bit to get the information out there, so I hope people will continue watching the situation. And once again, Bowie.blogspot.com just in case I didn't mention it. I hope you'll go there, check out the work that he's doing there, and, uh, and continue to follow him, as I'm sure there will be some interesting reports on China and North Korea coming out soon. So, Niall, thank you so much for your time tonight.
2: Thank you so much, James. Speak to you soon.
1: Absolutely. All right, there he goes, Niall Bowie. And that's it for us tonight, but we will be be back 23 hours from now tomorrow night. I have a uh, special presentation of a brand new... Well, something that I'm launching, a special treat for the Corbett Report subscribers specifically, so I'll let you in on that tomorrow night on the program. Until then, I hope you'll stay tuned to CorbettReport.com as the Kuala Lumpur 911 conference presentations continue to come forward. And over the next few days, I'll continue posting them up. So until 23 hours from now, same time, same channel, same place, same face, thank you all for listening and take care.